Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast. Uh, we have a very special treat for you today. Obviously, this is not my dining room, normal studio. Um, I have an incredible guest, which we're going we're gonna to do some role reversal here. But to start off, this is the Petros Podcast. It is episode 45, um, and my guest, or we'll get into this in a second, my sort of guest <laughs> is Gabby Richmond with the Denver Petroleum Club. Um, she's absolutely awesome, and I'm super pumped to have her here today, which by here I mean the place that she brought me to, so... <laughs> Um, so we're, we're, we're in this, uh, podcast studio, um, which is, which is cool. So hopefully the sound is halfway decent. Um, but we're going to talk about the global oil market today and the U S market, but we're going to do a bit of a flipperoo and, um, Gabby is actually going to sort of interview me. And I told people, um, when I was in Austin last week that, uh, I was going to do this and I wasn't actually going to prepare. And they said, do that. And then tell people you didn't prepare just to see how it goes. So this is going to be a fun sort of interview thing to talk about the market. And just to put this in context, I mean, this is, uh, it's Tuesday, April 26, 2022. There's a lot going on in the world. Um, and Gabby and I had lunch. She knows the market really, really well. Um, I've known her for a while. She's always at the events of the Denver Petroleum Club, but she's extremely knowledgeable on the market. So um, this will be really fun. And Brent closed at 106.08. Uh, WTI closed at 102.54. And NatGas um, closed at 6.85. And TTF, Dutch TTF, so we, we saw a big a spike um, in European natural gas prices. However, um, they're at 32 bucks, 32.24 from a dollar per mm. BTU perspective, um, and I'm sure we're going to be getting into all the reasons why uh, we saw the spike in net gas today. So without further ado, Gabby, um, how are you? And welcome to the Petronas Podcast. Thank you. I, I liked how you called it a flipperoo because the Australian in me was like, oh, yes, let's lean into that. Oh, <laughs> nice. No, <laughs> that's going to be the new gas yes. the flipperoo podcast. Um, that's great. Uh, uh, and we are here at X Denver, and Trisha and I were just laughing earlier because as Trisha walked up to the building there is a rail line that goes right behind and you know sure as can i swear like what's i I, I try not to because okay. uh, justin cream said tells me that people that people in north dakota don't listen if i say shit so i try okay. to limit well, the australian it. Yeah. Me were really oh, I, I, yes yes yeah. uh but there was coal, coal coming right past us and then i said other times i've seen natural gas and i've seen crude and all the millennials who live here go oh my gosh did you know that we used that much it's like this is Nothing. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll be putting up some, a couple selfies of the coal cars because I love it. At least there, there's a redeeming quality about downtown Denver, and it is the train tracks with the coal going through. And um, given all the stuff that happened today, actually, and it's well, it's been happening for the past um, since the, the invasion of of Ukraine by by Russia, and uh, but particularly today. Um, so from February 24th to today. I think we we will find out that we've seen a considerable uptick in coal use, um, and we saw that actually last year. EIA came out with some figures, um, so I think coal use is actually going to surge given uh, the fact that net gas prices are going up and the fact that Russia is uh, turning off the taps or potentially turning off the taps to Poland and Bulgaria um, as of tomorrow. Um, but with this, because Gabby and I we we spoke at length over lunch, and um, so. We're sort of going to do this interview style where I'm going to be the guest and I'm going to be interviewed. And we will have this discussion format. So I, 
I truthfully don't know exactly what Gabby has prepared. Um, so, but we're going to walk through the global oil market, and I'm assuming bring it back to the U.S. Um, if this goes long, we will um, we'll take a pause and we'll break this up into two episodes. But without further ado, um, have at it, Gabby. Yeah. Well, so this all came about because I said to Trisha at lunch. I love when you go what you call tangents, but I'm like, yes, keep going, go on the tangent. And I just love it. And so we kind of had this conversation. I said, I think your other listeners would love to have you just kind of run wild <laughs> for one podcast episode and have someone ask you about your thoughts of the market. So for you, you know, when you did a little bit of a teaser about this on your LinkedIn post, you said you're excited to talk about China. Uh, and the Australian in me, you know, I think is a bit more concerned with China, as we mentioned at lunch then maybe, you know, some other folks that I've talked to here in Australia, it's, it's all we talk about is the impact of China and what's China doing. Uh, so it's a lot more front of mind and center. And kind of diving in, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on China from a number of perspectives. Um, but recently, as in last month, they came out with the 14th five-year plan, the modern energy plan, as I'm sure you've seen it. Mm -hmm. And I went to open this, and it was really funny because it opened up in Chinese. I was like, well, I like to think I'm good, but I'm not that good. (laughs) Uh, So I went through the Google Translate version. But they talk about these buzzwords, and it's clean, low-carbon, safe, and efficient, right? And I just thought to myself, that doesn't really strike me as the China that I know. What gives? And in what five-year plan do you think that this ties up in tandem with your use of coal, and what kind of story are you trying to tell? So I guess my question to you is, what are your thoughts high level? Do you buy it? And do you think China really is serious about clean, low carbon, safe, and efficient? It's a great question. So I think um, China's current plans right now, I mean, the 14 five-year plan, to your point, is a... um, they basically do a big one, and then they do all these breakouts at, over time. Um, and so I haven't actually looked at the Google Translate version of that because I like to look at um, different scholars who do the actual, the full translation. So that you get they're translating the characters, and you're you're actually getting the correct meanings. But the 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 real 14th five-year plan, which came out last year, I have read in depth, and there's a lot on energy in particular. Actually, I Russia is actually mentioned directly within that 14th five-year plan, and the stuff on energy, yep. Folks probably don't realize that it's very, very intertwined with everything going on within China now. So um, the food and energy security is one of their like six pillars that they've been talking a lot about. And this was something when when people talk about Russia and they talk about Putin and they say, well, this is a new thing. Um, and that that you know, the joint statement that they put out together on February 4th that, you know, that was new. But if you look back into like the People's Daily and, and translations of the People's Daily, Putin was doing interviews with the People's Daily and with various um, Jinjua News and with various Chinese agencies all throughout 2021. Um, so this wasn't, this was like teed up well. So I mean, this has been going on. And if you look at their trade volumes to with each other, those have accelerated considerably as well. Um, so this was sort of in the works. But with that being said, is that this, this food and energy security, I think, is really important to tie together of thinking about how China is thinking about energy security, how they're thinking about food security, how they're thinking about their economy. And they have this uh, dual circulation strategy right now, which is about Basically, it's emphasizing their domestic economy and emphasizing, you know, building up jobs and, and then doing exports and, and and sort of making the international folks come to them for their high-end tech and everything. And energy would be really critical with that if you're trying to become, you know, a more high-end tech sector. So instead of slapping the Apple sticker on an iPhone and sending it out, you wouldn't be the ones that are 
are making it and not just making it but the only ones able to make it because you have all the critical components to make it so within their 14th five-year plan it's really serious if you actually read it because it does get into the the energy piece of um i mean it's not like how much natural gas and coal and everything we're using it's just that it's it's all of it's mentioned so it is truly i i explain to people and i explain to clients it's an all of the above approach i mean china is doing all of the above and um there's some some podcasts I've listened to and some various things that uh, folks within China talk about, but um, folks that cover renewables are covering the China stuff pretty intensely because China has a, uh, a very much a dual strategy where they're doing coal and I can't use both my hands because I'm holding this mic. So, um, but they're using coal and, and renewables in tandem. So when people say that, you know, China is building out, you, you always hear lots of folks in the oil and gas industry and others talk about, you know, China is building out a coal-fired power plant every week. So, you know, everything we're doing for emissions is all for naught. It's quite truthful that China is building out a coal-fired power plant nearly every week. I mean, the amount is huge because this country is massive. And so they are building out really, really strongly this year. Um, they put several billion dollars into it just at the beginning of this year alone into building out coal-fired power generation in, in lockstep in tandem with renewables. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that that coal-fired power generation could power the entire of the U.S. It is yeah, they, so the, their coal, which is right, about 55%. So the, they have so much redundancy. So it's basically their grid is based 65 to 70% coal, which you can't probably believe that exactly. But the redundancy is, is essentially that we're building up coal-fired power generation and renewables together so that when we're using the renewables, we're not using the coal and we're saving that. When we're using the coal and we when the renewables aren't working, we have this redundant capacity. It's the opposite of what everyone in the rest of the world has done where we're using, we're trying to just use renewables. And they actually admit that the transmission costs are extremely expensive for renewables and I think that's so they, they're sort of eating the cost so it means that if it's that expensive one you're doing it to build up your renewable industry within your country because you do definitely want to export it and you want to be the leader in those exports and they've made, made very clear that they also want the renewable sector to equate by 2025 to be 1.7 trillion in economic output which is massive and nearly the size of their uh, property sector conveniently. Um, so it's, it's just a huge thing. So one, if you're building out your renewable sector and you're building literally a coal-fired power plant and you're building wind and solar next to it, um, you're, and you know the transmission costs are, are really high for, for these renewables. So it means that you're thinking about energy security very seriously because um, when you're not using, if you're using wind and solar when it's working, then you're saving on coal. And they've had this big plan um, just lately. I'm really, really emphasizing the coal, fire, the coal production. So the coal generating coal output because um, Australia, as you know, um, you guys got hammered pretty hard by you know asking questions about COVID origins, and then they sort of said no more Australian wine and done with you, yeah, <laughs> no more Australian wine and no more coal imports, and that was um, just immediate. So regardless of WTO, regardless of everything, I mean, very much not playing by the rules. They just sort of enacted these things, and so only about twelve per. It was like. Basically, the only imports that they were getting for coal were from Australia, and only about 12% of their usage. But that 12% really added up significantly last year when we had the starting of this sort of energy crisis at the beginnings of last year with winter, and they turned off some coal production there because mines weren't safe. Um, they turned off the taps for getting it from Australia, and then you end up with a situation where this is why energy security, this this coal piece is so, so important. So they're ramping up coal production. They want to be completely self-sufficient in coal production. A lot of that coal is coming from the province of Xinjiang, which is which is where we produce all the solar and all the wind, where we also have forced labor and human rights abuses and one to three million Uyghur Muslims within some form of internment camps. Um, but that's where a lot of the coal is. And 
China has lots of coal, and that means energy security. Well, and so then on your last podcast episode, when you were talking about LNG, and you made a comment that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to dig into a bit more, about how you thought that it, it wasn't realistic to say that Chinese imports of natural gas is going to continue to increase at the rate that it's increasing right now because of your exact comment about energy security and that they would want something they can produce more at home uh, that they don't have to import from other sources. And your podcast guests respectfully disagree. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I wanted to ask if, if you had changed your mind on that or if you still think coal is the way forward and... and I, I don't think it's realistic to look at anything China does. Um, so if you're looking at what China's doing abroad um, or anything they're doing with the foreign business community and they are, it's not a developing country and it's not within their, their sphere of influence, then no, that's not long-term sustainable. And China does a lot of things that don't make sense to, to a lot of entities. Um, they, they're, What's the question mark here, and I think what Renee was talking about, she's the head of strategy for Chilurian. It's also a public company. So, I mean, I, I fully respect, um, you know, the, her comments and everything. But I did respectfully disagree because I think uh, China, just because they're entering into long-term contracts with U.S. natural gas LNG exporters, which, by the way, I don't think U.S. natural gas LNG exporters can, should be doing that. I think it's, it's a, uh, I, I think it's not... Uh, the right path for American companies, and I think the the volatility and the um, problems that we're going to have with China down the road are going to make this really cumbersome. Um, but the fact that China is entering into these long term contracts is just the fact that that's probably was they thought was best suited, and it, it's a very top down. I mean, it's top down country, so it doesn't mean that Xi Jinping was like, "Hey, go sign up that long term contract." Yeah. They were just made. That's for. One is probably making sure, first and foremost, that they were securing the energy they need at the very moment. So you have to look at what they're consuming at the very moment, and that's because they did they had a shortfall of energy because they had too much hydropower and because they didn't have enough coal. So we have seen LNG imports fall off. I mean, in 2021, they dominated that space. They drove up net gas prices, but that was because they didn't have their energy house in order. But if we, if anyone thinks that China is going to allow themselves to be exposed to U.S. LNG, not a per chance in hell. I mean, that, that would be the opposite of energy security. They want, I mean, the fact that China um, bowed out, Chinese national offshore oil company, Sinook, um, said that they're selling off their North Sea crude. I mean, why would they sell off their North Sea crude? It's because they they literally said we are, would rather be in in Guyana, would rather be in um, in Africa, and it's like, well, of course you would because you have you already have resources in Africa and in Brazil, and those are countries that you can control that that don't have rule of law that that makes sense. So it's really a sign of that. A, a, a serious decoupling with the West. And so the idea that LNG will just be this sort of separate thing, no, it, they'll, they'll do it from an energy security perspective in the near term, but they don't, I mean, they'll burn those contracts. I mean, they overpay for everything or have historically, especially when it comes to energy, especially when it comes to security and all these things that they, people say, well, they just overpaid for all this stuff in Africa. And it's like, well, it's sort of panning out when you get, you have a, a port in Djibouti and I mean, do you have these, like you actually... You know, you have a military port and everything. So this, I have a lot of disagreements with the China and Africa podcast that I listen to a lot. I love it. Um, I have a lot of respect for the, for the work, but I, I fundamentally disagree with a lot of their premise on China. Well, and when you bring up the energy security, which is a big part of that plan, the other part of that plan, you know, they say peak emissions by 2030. Then they also say net zero by 2060. And I look at that and I have a hard time buying it with 
realistically agreeing with you that I don't think they're going to move away from coal in a meaningful way in terms of especially even having a backup reliable source of efficient energy to all of their renewable build out. And then don't even get me started on the actual usage of renewables. But I guess my question to you is, have you thought about that any further on how they're going to achieve net zero? Um, it it truthfully does not matter because um, they're, and I say this with, with all sincerity, um, but you won't be, like China came out with their GDP figure. It was 4.8% um, and people had expected 4.2% and yet their unemployment figure had come up. Um, and their, but GDP, so the unemployment had risen, but GDP had also risen. And there was a lot of, I mean, everyone knows that China cooks the books and this data. Um, so that's going to be no different than your net zero stuff. And I think people really don't fundamentally appreciate the Bennett, like why China participates so heavily in global institutions, why they participate so heavily in the UN, why they, they care so much about leading the third world and why they really promote climate change. And it's if you are producing all the solar and all the wind and you have the International Energy Agency saying the whole thing, the whole energy transition rests on solar and wind and it's all coming from China, then of course they're going to say, oh, by the way, and we're going we're gonna to curb our emissions. They're not going to. And they're, they're, they certainly can't. They're not going to hit their peak by 2030 at the rate at which they're building out coal-fired power generation. And that is, you know, as we... as I was talking about it's redundant. It's redundant capacity. It's it's over capacity build for coal fired power generation, but it's there and it will be used. And it's sort of like now it's energy security. I mean, people in Europe are going to be burning lots of coal uh, because they're going to need to because that's how they're going to power um, their lives. And um, China is definitely going to do that. And as China get, as as you know, being um, in Australia, and I'm sure lots of folks talk about this, but you know, what are their true ambitions and where are they going to go? They're certainly not going to do it on you know, a hope and a prayer chance on solar and wind that it's working that day. No, you, you can't have a, you, you can't have a growing economy. You can't have a, a military based off that. Like it's, it, the solar and wind and renewables are, are the priority for them is to export it. Um, and I think really building it out now, it's just, a, it's a win-win. It's a double benefit. But even in China, that solar and is not effective when it's, when the sky is um, cloudy, but it's also because they have a lot of pollution. So they're actually, their solar panels aren't as effective or efficient because of the pollution. And the wind side is like, it works well when the weather's cooperating. So yeah. when they had a, when they had a hot summer, uh, the wind wasn't blowing in the, in the heat is if you ever, if you ever driven through Wyoming when it's really hot, those wind turbines are not, I try not to, if I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, I like Wyoming. I mean, in the summertime, that's usually, but yeah. Australian here. Yeah, well, so if you, but if you're driving by, you don't see those wind turbines moving, and it's those times where they're not moving, but it's also, it's like, okay, well, it's really hot in the summer, so you're going to have less hydropower, and it's the combination of all that. So that's really partly why, I mean, 17% of their grid, more than anybody in the entire world, is uh, their hydropower, and that makes a huge, I mean, that's really, really important when you think of it, as they're adding renewables, they absolutely need that coal-fired backup. So, um, no, they're not going to peak emissions by 2030. They will say they will. Um, and I, I, they just can't. I mean, even right now, there's they, Xi Jinping came out today and said, uh, because the market's uh, selling off Chinese stocks and you've got folks leaving China left, right, and center. And so they said, hey, we're going to start spending on infrastructure again. And infrastructure is like the debt on you know these property developers and this these empty homes and everything. It's, it's insane. But yet that's what they're going to have to do to keep people employed. And so if you're doing that, you sure as hell cannot reduce emissions. Yeah, and these coal-fired power plants have what twenty years on them from a life perspective. Oh yeah, they're yeah. they're not going to retire them early. No, <laughs> no, and they're not even going to. I don't even think you're going to retire them 
not early. I mean, you have to think about this from a very strategic, you know, sort of like, uh, this is not, China is not Europe. China does not care about the, I mean, basic human rights um, or anything, but they certainly do not care about um, emissions the way Europe does, or the way lots of people think that they, they do not. They're only, they're saying it, it's to, it's to tick a box. It is not because they believe in reducing emissions. That is not how the that's not how the Communist Party works. I mean, Communist Party is at the top. And so if emissions are going to threaten the Communist Party, that's they're just going to say, hey, we, we solved it and we're not going to do it. And I mean, uh, the China went to Europe for the their meeting a couple weeks ago. Um, and the uh, Europe and China had a dialogue, you know, and it was, I'm blinking on the guy's name because um, I can't pronounce it correctly, so I'm not going to botch it. But anyways, the European delegation is meeting with the Chinese and um, Europe is just... a completely focused on Ukraine. They want China to participate in, in helping to, to tamper down the Ukraine stuff, helping to have peace dialogues and everything. And, and all China said was, hey, can we talk about climate change? Can we talk about climate change? Which means, can we talk about our solar and wind exports to you? And they actually were putting out um, within China, within 15 minutes of the meeting, they had already put out the conclusion of the meeting and to China, to the Chinese people. Um, so it it just it's ridiculous and if you like if you google global times um and do it daily like google global times and see what is it's in english and it's it's like opposite world of what that's chinese media that's what they're saying and it's like opposite of everything that's actually happening in reality okay now i'm gonna have to go do that yes it's probably gonna make me angry so i have to wait till i have a glass of wine yeah <laughs> well it's it's, it's, it's it's crazyville so it's like one of those things when you just do a lot of in-depth studying on china you really um it, you realize that the, the missions thing is is um it's, it's just not a something to be taken seriously not realistic well i can't say i'm surprised but i did want to get your thoughts on that and you know kind of the last thing on china before i'll, I'll move away from it somewhat uh the zero COVID policy, and everyone's talking about it right now, and I think everyone is concerned about supply chains. Everyone's stressing out. You have, I think I had a couple of days ago, 350 plus cargo tankers that are waiting outside Shanghai. We've all heard, maybe we haven't, you know, I have watched the video of people in Shanghai screaming from their balconies and from their apartments, and it puts a very human element on what's happening that I think it's important to layer over and we have these economic conversations. But what's your view going forward on how long that's going to impact markets for, what that's going to do short term, what that's going to do through the end of the year? So it's huge. Um, and it's the, because there's a lot of elements to this zero COVID strategy, which I think I've talked about a little bit, but not in depth. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss it. Because So Shanghai is a city of 25 million people. So it's a huge city. Um, and this shutdown started at the end of, basically the end of uh, March, beginning of April. And people were told four days, you know, we have four days to lockdown. So in Shanghai, just as like in big cities, people buy groceries the day of. You know, it's very fresh food and lots of vegetables. And you keep hearing about no vegetables. Um, and it's interesting because I've covered, I've went through every podcast on this topic where people are talking and we have heard more probably out of this because there's so many foreigners that live in Shanghai. And so that's why this very has gotten, city. gotten so much attention is because people are, people are very outraged. So even I don't, Bloomberg and CNBC are doing a horrible job of covering this in depth. BBC is actually, you know, talked about these stories and I was, I was, Pretty impressed that they were, you know, at the beginning talking about them. But the first things were like literally parents being like two year olds being removed from their 
parents and the mom being like it was like a two-year-old or toddler that had got COVID and so they were separating them and they were taking the toddler to a quarantine facility and when you start learning about these quarantine facilities they're 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 sheds they're like shacks there are no doctors there um they're not even like proper toilet facilities or bathing or anything and so when you're sending any kind of care yeah there's no care so they're taking people out and they're putting them in these quarantine facilities and the same with elderly is like these people are are dying in there people are knocking down their parents and grandparents doors i heard yep to try and check that they're alive yep it's a very so like you have this the human element is super super serious and it really does get to the fact that like what is the zero covid strategy and when you say like it they say well it's to save the people it's like i'm sorry you're not you're not this is not a human strategy because what's happening is if you, they're they're literally welding people in their homes, so they're completely boarded up or l- like welded them in their homes, and the fat the lack of food. I mean, when they did this shutdown, and think about you know people commend China for their ability to just enable you know enact a policy. Well, it's like they enacted this policy, everybody shut in their homes, and they complied with it for because they it was supposed to be four days, and then they were going to do an, and then it was another four days, and then it was it's been indefinite. It's like so one days now. Yeah, they're in, they're pushing. I guess they're looking at it. They've been pushing a month. And then now they're saying it's going to go till May 8th at least, uh, perhaps. So food orders have been starting to come in, but the elderly don't have phones and apps. So a lot of them have not are not internet savvy, so they haven't been able to to do this. And um, so they have reported, you know, we're hearing from different podcasts, various sources that, you know, people are dying of, older people are dying because they're not getting food or just care. Um, we heard before even the shutdowns that, um, a pregnant woman, some children, um, a pregnant woman had lost her baby because she was in front of a hospital and she wanted to go to a hospital for care and couldn't get into the hospital because she did not have a zero, a, a negative COVID test. And same, it was for children who didn't have a negative COVID test. I think they were having asthma attack or something. There's multiple stories like this. Um, and these stories, by the way, if you really dig into, you know, Apple podcasts, and you're listening to this stuff. I mean, these stories get put on their Weibo chat system and then they're immediately deleted. So people post them up and they get immediately deleted and the government says this is against their, their rules. But the fact is it's already out there and then people screenshot this stuff and eventually gets out. And the reason we're hearing so much more about this is because, as I was saying, Shanghai is this global city and so you have a lot of foreigners. And this is just so serious is that so they're, they've said, hey, we've they've increased their death count and they keep saying it's it's the elderly they weren't vaccinated but they could have died from covid they could not have died from covid they could have died from starvation it's they don't have clean drinking a lot of them don't have like proper drinking water and just not proper access to food and so these delivery systems a lot of folks have been um you know communities have been getting together and doing these massive bulk orders if they can even get the drivers to come into the city because they've locked them and then most recently they've had all these people have been talking about the barricades they're seeing in front of their apartments that so even if they wanted to go for a little walk outside they're not allowed to but they have complete barricades up and it's just a it's it's really really sad from the human perspective i think it's very illustrating to what how china functions as like how top-down stuff actually works and so think about that just in terms of policies for renewables and stuff it's yeah. not going to be clean conversation before this it's, is really proving your point of they're it's going to do whatever the heck they want to do. right and it's, it's super messy it's very painful and the zero covid policy i think up until this point one they don't have mrna vaccines so they're not they don't have the you know, the, the vaccines that we've used um, largely in the West. 
Um, interesting that they, I think they could now because they, they've signed some deals with BioNTech, um, but they haven't rolled them out. And But they also had, I mean, China and, and lots of Asia, and I'm, I'm by no means uh, pretending to be an epidemiologist, but all the stuff I've listened to on um, South China Morning Post and Inside China and some great stuff is they do have a lot of epidemiologists. And they, if you think about it, they were also explo exposed to various SARS and stuff that we weren't. Um, so in the beginning of this virus, when people ask, like, how come you don't have a lot of elderly vaccinated, both in Hong Kong and in China, and it was because they weren't getting sick before, and they just sort of resisted the vaccine, not because of any, like, I don't want the vaccine, but because they didn't think they needed it because they weren't getting sick and dying. And the problem is the Omicron or this latest wave or whatever it is, it's so contagious. I mean, I got it after being vaccinated. I got it, you know, in January. I mean, same. I think everyone got it. Everyone got time. it. Super, super quick, it, rapid spreading. And so the ability to contain this, and that's where this gets really wonky and silly, is that you're testing every day. And that's why the stock market went crazy and why everybody's freaking out is because they're test they're doing this mass testing in Beijing and they're coming up with these numbers. And then you ask yourself, these are like, they'll show up with like 20,000 cases a day. Only 800 of those 20,000 will be symptomatic. So you really have to start saying, what is going on? Like, no, people aren't actually sick. And so you're saving the people, you're saving, you're doing this for the elderly, but the elderly are dying anyway because you're not feeding them, you're not taking care of them. Um, and you're separating parents and children. I mean, that's, that, it's quite scary. I mean, there's no, there's, there is no rule of law. There's no institutions. I mean, that's, you're getting to really scary territory. And the market, and I know there, this, we have a war going on in, in Ukraine, but it's really given China a pass on these, you know, human rights abuses to the nth degree, let alone the stuff going on junk, but to, you know, these everyday citizens um, and people are like, oh, well, well, they're navigating and they're doing better. And it's like, well, if Shanghai, you know, they start doing these lockdowns, the implications, you know, separate from the human element to your point of the ports. Um, so Shanghai is a big, you know, obviously a big port. And you can see, I think Bloomberg had some good maps they put out. You can see the congestion. Yeah. And we saw that in Hong Kong. So you do have port congestion, and then the days actually to ship is really what's gone on. But they went from, you know, 20 to 40 days, like in 2019, to we're looking at 100, 100 plus days from China to the U.S. and over that to go, and like 120 days to go from China to Europe. So I think what's really interesting is that we could very well end up with, and the fact that, I don't know if you saw earnings today, several Alphabet, I mean, Google, several several companies did not do, you know, stellar. And the market took a dive because we have way too much, you know, weighted on tech. But um, I know from that article that people were saying they were, have tried to cancel their orders. Well, of course, you can't cancel your order mid-shipment. I mean, it takes 100 days. But we have, we could end up with actually a lot of inventory. And we do have congestion because we don't have enough people to unload the ports and not enough truck drivers and everything. But it's just one single element to this of like the ability to sh turn on and shut down cities and ports is the ramifications are, are really, really huge. Um, and I just think if, if you're looking at this straight as just a COVID thing, you're probably getting it wrong. There's a, there's a lot of things happening within China, um, but it's the, it's the implications for global supply chains are really, really serious, especially in the context of this war in Ukraine and the the energy exacerbation energy and the the you know potential issues with with grain which is another thing china's emphasizing is this grain security which they're buying a lot of grain from russia that was a lot to digest that was a that was a rant you said you like the tangents and the rant so that was the rant no i love it and you know exactly to your point i just think it's i think it's surprising to me knowing how china prioritizes their economy this zero covid policy and the impact that it's having on the global economy and 
must be having on their own economy. Is it's shocking to me that that this is where we're at? I mean, as an Australian, get me started on every time I talk to someone at an event, they're like, "Oh, Australia during COVID, gosh, that would have been horrible." Thankfully, I wasn't there, but it's taking a very similar vein to me, and I'm just kind of surprised that that's where the priorities are is during COVID. But. Yeah, and I've been honestly listening to people, foreigners within Shanghai, and hearing their stories, like being interviewed and stuff, and. I, I'm sort of shocked at some some people the acceptance of it because they'll say, "Hey, you know, our area is nice, or I'm a teacher, and we actually have a really nice apartment, so we can't complain, and we have enough food to get us by, and all this stuff." So I think for a lot of folks who, who are well equipped, it's fine. But there are so many that aren't. It's 25 million people, and another really sad piece is that so China's system of like rural versus um, their Hoku system, which is like how they class people of like urban and rural. So don't even get me. So when, when China puts out on their global times, you'll see all the stuff on human rights and, and how it's all bad in the U S. So they have a rural, like people categorize as rural people categorize as urban and China scholars, if they listen to this, will probably be, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this proper justice, but it's called the Hoku system. And so when you're born, you're designated as rural or urban and you get a lot less benefits in society. If you're, if you're born as rural versus urban. And so when you see that unemployment data, that unemployment data is only that shot up and is pushing 6% is only urban. It does not include the rural population, which is several hundred million people. And you can't change once you're assigned, you're assigned. I think some people have done it. I've heard it. There was a professor I saw at Columbia University that she said she, she actually is in America, obviously, and is a professor and she was born on in the rural. So I have no idea how that changed. I'm sure, I'm sure there's ways to, to, by your weight of or something, um, but it's very, it, it is actually in all, for all reality, it's very difficult to change that. But you have all these migrant workers, which is something you might have heard about in these lockdowns as well, because your migrant workers are a lot of people who they just come into the cities and they do a lot of Uber driving and deliveries and everything. Well, they have nowhere to go. So they're just stuck in these cities, you know, living out of their cars. They're not getting paid. And these are very low paying jobs. We're talking, you know, a couple hundred, a couple thousand dollars a week of uh, actually in their currency. So, I mean, this is not a ton of money. Um, and it's like, so the migrant worker piece is just a, a whole other element of, you know, people that aren't even talked about from, so from a real economic perspective, China does not give us real color and clarity. And that 4.2% 4, 4 number is beyond cooked. I mean, I would yeah. be shocked if they're even north, if they're in the in positive territory. Um, but I certainly think that unemployment figure is higher. We see that in youth unemployment data, which is probably, you know, it's high teens. Um, so there are a lot of people in China without jobs as the property sector is declining and all these things. And so um, I wouldn't say the COVID strategy is necessarily to mask it, but it certainly gives an, a, there's a, a clear reasoning when the economic data is going to be really bad. There's a very clear reason to say, well, we shut down that city. Therefore, this data is going to be really bad. And so I think there's not a lot of like, uh, I, I've been disappointed in a lot of the the analysis and stuff I've heard of just like that no one's asking the sort of the deeper questions of why. I mean, this is a, a really, really serious thing for the second largest economy, different style of economy altogether, but is the second largest economy in the world. And so the ramifications are huge, but there's, there's logic to why they would be doing something like this. There's a lot to dig in. I feel like we could spend an entire podcast just on China and maybe one day we will. Uh, but I do want to keep on that Absolutely. geopolitical front. Yes. And you've mentioned Russia and Ukraine a number of times. And obviously, big news today with Russia only accepting rubles uh, and discussing cutting off taps and to Poland and Bulgaria. And I want to get your thoughts on that and, again, what you think the ramifications will be. If you think they'll actually do it, if you think they're serious and they're not bluffing. Uh, and then we can we can dive into some other nuances after that. 
Yeah, so I, I don't think they're bluffing. Um, I think that this shows an escalation in how their seriousness, and I think it shows Russia's escalation in the seriousness of how they see this war and how seriously they want they want to be taken seriously. So they've said, hey, we want this crew, we want these uh, our products done, you know, paid for in rubles, um, and this is, you know, you have to do this if you want to play ball. And they know that Europe really needs this gas. However, when it comes to Bulgaria and, and Poland, Poland does have a lot of, uh, they, they have ramped up LNG import facilities over the past several years. So they've been sort of working on this. So Poland has said um, that they're, you know, they're not okay with it, but I mean, they're okay with this. But it's it's Germany and Hungary who have been the holdouts in, in Europe, in the European Union that have said, hey, no, we aren't willing to ban, you know, Russian energy. And all of Europe, I think that there was a ban on coal, which is in terms of a dollar amount, it's 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 low, right? It's it's like four billion a year versus we're talking like a billion a day. Well, I mean, in in terms of the the prices we're seeing is is really high. I believe that's that's the math. I could have that wrong, but massive amount of money from Europe for energy is going to Russia. Um, if you looked at Russians' foreign currency reserves, those came down. Obviously, in the month of this last month, uh, the most recent data for month, it came down. But I mean, it's a it's a blip on the radar because their foreign currency reserves are were all time highs. Um, so rubles would really help them though in the ability to. They basically wanted to take it into one bank, exchange it into rubles, and then they would have it in their system because they want to function off rubles. Um, I think they're serious. We'll see if this get ha the like the extent of it. Um, I didn't see like is this going to extend all the way? I and mean, this will have ramifications because these pipelines move throughout throughout these countries. But um, if and you're... through Ukraine, if I'm correct. I think it was Mark Rosano. I was reading something he wrote. Uh, and he's like, you know, the interesting part about all of this is Europe buys gas from Russia and Russia takes yeah. it through Ukraine and they just kind of do this. So that's whole... that's why if you're if you're looking at the map, and I, I was struggling with it a little today, and I'm and by no means I have not got a you know, rework this back. But if you're looking at the map, you just see like these pipelines that go from through Ukraine and in, then onward and into into Germany and elsewhere. So it's it, the extent my question is, and I don't know this right now, is Poland, is it just Poland and Bulgaria? How much of it is passed through? How are are they shutting all of it down? Are they shutting the volumes down? Uh, because if it you have some pass through, but you but it was Poland and Bulgaria were specified. Um, so it's we'll, we'll see how far this goes and, and the clarifications behind it. And I truthfully don't have like if if I had known exactly was it is it just Poland is it just Bulgaria? Here's the exact volumes. And I always struggle because everyone puts the numbers and so they say the percentage of exposure that these countries have. And it's like I want to see MCF a day, BCF a day. Yeah. Like what is this? And um, they're not, we, we don't have those perfectly. So it's, yes, uh, lots of Swedish or lots of Nordic countries are, are heavily exposed. And you have Germany that's really, really exposed because they import so much gas. Um, so if they turned off the taps, um, it would be severe. Now for Poland and Bulgaria themselves, I think Poland, one, it's getting warmer um, in Europe. So that's that's beneficial from a gas side. Um, so they they have some in storage and they're they say they're okay right now. It doesn't mean that prices won't surge. And I think prices will if the taps turn off, um, it, the prices are gonna go up. It, we'll, we'll see an actual surge in pricing. So we'll see to the extent. But if it's just Poland and Bulgaria, it's not the same as if we're turning off. Germany. And, you know, staring at the map with Ukraine, it's like the fact that it's still flowing and it's it's going through is just quite interesting to me um, because Ukraine is talking so much about obviously wanting that no one should be buying this stuff. Um, and inevitably, they're probably they're probably getting you're getting paid. You, like, exactly. You know, right. <laughs> Europe's funding Russian military. Russian military is funding right. Ukraine military. And it's all. 
but the ability for I think um, you know the ability to knock out pipelines in Ukraine that's actually there, and I, sh- it, I think it's extremely extremely important. Um, it's and, but it really comes to me it's about the volume. So it's like saying just it's like saying when people were tweeting and texting and everything and putting on like uh, all the volumes of the Russian barrels that had left the market. They haven't. They didn't leave didn't the market. Leave, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah, some are having the stickier and they're having trouble finding homes, but they're at a thirty dollars discount to Brent. And India's um, picking them up. China's picking them up. Right. They're floating on the same somewhere. So they're moving and they're mixed in. Exactly. So it always comes about to like, and it takes time for the market to get that. Nat gas is different because this is being piped. This is a completely yeah. different molecule and very, very different. Um, but it also puts an onus on, and I didn't hear. You know, I, I think Jen Psaki had made some comments on it, but I don't think I didn't hear the response from like the ramping up of uh, the U.S. basically said, hey, we're, we're coming to to the aid. But it's like you have to ramp up these exports. So and we do have the ability in the U.S. and I'm probably doing a nice pivot um, onto the U.S. here uh, because we were sort of been talking about about the, the global stuff a lot. So and I feel like Gabby is going to. I was about ready to get into the U.S. stuff, so I feel like that's that's where Gabby wants to go with that. Yes, this is perfect. Awesome. So uh, with that, we are going to, that is the conclusion of part one, and uh, the next episode you will hear will be part two. So thank you guys so much for listening, um, and uh, we'll be back with uh, part two next week. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.